0: Hey, six o'clock straight up. It's Wednesday evening. Is it evening or late afternoon? I can never tell. My name is Mark Riley and this is the Mark Riley show. We're here till seven and we got a lot of stuff to talk about today, including NFL Michigas, which we'll talk with a special guest about our number. And you can call us anytime during the next 60 minutes. 88-874-4888. That's triple 888- eight. 874 4888. You're listening to the Progressive Radio Network. Tell your friends it's PRN.FM. Now, a couple of things I-, I want to say right off the top of the broadcast before we get into the heavy issues of the day. Number one, um, I have lived a relatively long life on this earth, and I have uh, what I consider to be an amiable group of friends who have been my friends for a very, very, very long time. How long, you might ask? I'm not telling you how long. But they've been around for a while. They've been around so long that we became friends absolutely without regard to our political affiliation, political beliefs, philosophies, etc. We were just friends. And as I've gotten older, I've started to understand that some of my very close friends— are not progressives. Nope, they're just not. And it, it, we became friends, many of us, out of a shared experience. That is marching in the and bugle corps, which I've talked about a couple of months ago on this air. And it's a part of my life that I have always loved. For a long time, I zealously guarded it from anything else I did. Uh, but now in my old age, what the heck? So a lot of these guys actually... And women, too, for that matter, actually listen to the program. Okay? Now, these are people, and Jason Toppenfeld, I think you can relate to this. These are people who, when I see them, when I used to see them back in the day, when I was working on terrestrial radio, they'd walk up to me and say, hey, Mark, you still working for that effing communist radio station? (laughs) That's how they used to approach me with stuff. You know? But we were friends. You know? I I dogged them out. We played a dozens, Whatever. So I just wanted to start the broadcast off this evening saying a big shout out and good evening to all of you from that part of my life. And I know some of y'all are conservatives. Some of y'all going to hate what you hear over the next hour, but stick around anyway, because we're friends, right? Now, another order of business. I got, uh, I think it was a Facebook post. My wife keeps track of all this stuff. and I got a Facebook post from a listener who happens to work for Cablevision. You know Cablevision, the uh, system that ate Chicago and the Bronx and Brooklyn or wherever else. Uh, Cablevision has been locked in, actually, it's not, it's not Cablevision. It's CWA, the Communication Workers of America Local 1109. They have been locked in a two-and-a-half-year battle. With Cablevision. And it's over, like, just negotiating a contract, for God's sake. So, the other week, Cablevision, which, by the way, is owned by the same guy, uh, James Dolan, that owns the Knicks and Rockefeller Center and, I don't know, did he, did he buy One World Trade yet? I don't know. Guy's got money. Filthy rich. I think he owns Newsday, too, now that I think of it. So, he's got a little piece of media. Anyway... He decides to hold what, I guess what you would call any place else, a snap election. And lo and behold, the snap election indicated that a majority of the workers, a slim majority, I think the vote was supposedly 123 to 115, in Brooklyn now. This is specifically in Brooklyn. Did not want Cablevision representing them. So it was, of course, commissioned by Cablevision. Commissioned by Cablevision. And uh, the union, the CWA said, well, what is this? What is this? This is, a, this is not real. This is a sham. Now, anybody knows me knows in a battle between union and management, Jason, who do you think I'm going to be siding with? Union. Yeah, union. You're right. Union. So uh, I just wanted to shout out uh, and forgive me. I I, I didn't uh, remember your name. But we're going to we're going to get in contact and we're going to do a segment on here about this battle with Cablevision in Brooklyn, because it's one of those things. And Mayor de Blasio, I have to say, I give him credit. He has been on the side of the union on this for some time and uh, to the point that he has incurred the wrath of Dolan. I don't know what that what are they going to do? cut his service to Gracie Manchin? Oh, that's Time Warner. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I guess Dolan can't really hurt him that way. Maybe deny him admittance to Rock Center. Or, you know, not giving bogus tickets to a Nick game? I don't know. But I do know this. It's not that difficult to sit down and negotiate a contract. Dolan's got contracts with all of those people playing for the Knicks. You don't think they're playing just for the heck of it, do you? Or that they're doing some kind of bar. They got contracts. They got a union. But yet these cable vision workers who who essentially just want to be paid like you know some of the other like Verizon and some of those others and they've been fighting two and a half years over this Jim Dolan come on man before you go on the road on the road with your little rock band sit down and negotiate and get this straightened out will you and stop holding sham elections ridiculous so We got some top stories for you this evening. It's only six after six. So I I, I took care of the housekeeping fairly early, right, Jason? (laughs) Now I have to talk about something that troubles me greatly. I see these stories about putting combat troops in Iraq. I see earlier today the House of Representatives backs President Obama's plan, voted to support President Obama's plan to train, equip and train, quote, moderate forces in Syria. Now, this bothers me on a on a lot of levels. Number 1, putting boots on the ground. This is uh, the president's top military advisor said this. The president himself didn't say it. And I think John Kerry kind of said, "Well, maybe not." But when I hear General Martin Dempsey, who's chair of the Joint Chiefs, say to the Senate Armed Services Committee that He believes an American-led coalition will beat the Islamic State. He would not foreclose the possibility of asking the president to send American troops to fight militants on the ground. The president has ruled it out. But what Dempsey's saying is, if we can't win this through the air, then we're going to have to win it on the ground. Now, there's an element of logic to this, okay, if you believe that these folks are going to have to be engaged, brought to justice, and essentially have the back of their movement broken for the barbarism that they have committed. And by the way, barbarism is not limited to ISIS or Al-Qaeda or anybody else, for that matter. Plenty of people act barbaric. America, in fact, was built on barbarism, but that's all whole other discussion for another day. The problem with this is very simple. If you can't bomb them out, you're going to put boots on the ground, and we're going to get right back into another stinking quagmire just like Iraq. Except people will, you know, think, well, this is a little bit more legit because this is a real threat. Here's what bothers me. And, Jason, I don't know if this bothers you, but this really bothers the crap out of me. If you look at history and you look at wars that America has been involved with, with the notable exception of the Civil War, when people rioted when they didn't want to go fight the Confederates, okay? But there was a groundswell of support, for example, for World War II, for American involvement in World War One, after some early isolationist sentiments. And people got up and said, okay, well, yeah, all right, we're going to have to, have to do this, we're going to do this. And people enlisted. What we have now is a bunch of people on the sidelines say, yeah, go beat them. But they're not ready to put on a uniform. They're not ready to pick up a gun. They're too old and flabby. (laughs) As Dick Cheney. You can't, you know, know, there's no, people want somebody else to do this for them. Just like, you know, uh, the president sent 3,000 troops to fight Ebola in Africa. Can you make war with a disease? What are you going to do, shoot Ebola? I don't understand. It would seem to me that logically the way you fight Ebola is to send, like, phalanxes of doctors and medical personnel over there. We send army. I don't understand that. I, I, I just don't. But when it comes to ISIS, and Jason, since you're here, I, I, I got to pick on you tonight, all right? Since you're here, this is an idea I have. And maybe they've already thought of this because I'm not the most, I'm not necessarily the brightest bulb in the marquee over here, all right? But I've seen story after story after story about how there are various elements that fund ISIS so that they're very, very well funded. They couldn't do all of this crap, they wouldn't have the, 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 the instruments to behead anybody if somebody wasn't paying for it, okay? So here's my thing. Whatever you do on the ground or whatever air war you want to fight, fine. America has got more hackers per square foot than any place else in the world. We got some good hackers. I say you bring a bunch of them together, you pay them some money, and you tell them this is your mission, destroy ISIS financial pipeline. Whatever means you need to do it, do it. All right. Put viruses in their bank accounts. Do the stuff that Americans sometimes don't like to get their hands dirty doing on a white collar level, although some people do, but disrupt ISIS ability to make war financially. I don't care who it hurts. I don't care who it is, that's, whose ox is gored or who objects. And by the way, you know, if you do this on the DL uh you have a level of plausible deniability. Who us? (laughs) We didn't do nothing. (laughs) What, are you kidding me? The dog ate my homework. I don't know. But, and maybe, I don't know if there are enough people listening to actually make this happen, but it would seem to me that along with whatever else you're doing, you stop their financial pipeline. And you don't, you don't tell them about it? I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't work for the government. This is just an idea I had. I have no... Confidence or faith that they're actually going to do it. But I know that if you disrupt their money. You will disrupt them. You will make it more difficult for them to publicly behead people. And that, you know, might be a good thing. And I'm sorry. I, I'm, a, I'm an old peacenik. I don't like to hear about combat. I don't even like to hear about airstrikes. I don't. Because airstrikes can go wrong. And you can hit a wedding party instead of hitting a bunch of terrorists. It's happened. And and you give them all 20 grand a piece. And that's supposed to be the end of that. And when it it comes to the Syrians. uh, I don't know whether they're going to have like a recruitment table where when when these people walk up, they're going to stamp a big M for moderate on their foreheads. Because I don't know how to deuce anybody's going to know who's a moderate in Syria. Okay, the people who were fighting Bashar al-Assad, who are generally seen as moderates and who are the people we're talking about training. Are no saints. And God forbid we train them like we funded the Mujahideen back in the day. Yeah, the Mujahideen, uh, Osama bin Laden student. (laughs) Okay, we fund whoever these moderates are. And next thing you know, they're turning their guns on us. It's happened before. I'm I'm just saying. You know now, y'all may think I'm crazy or I'm an old coot who don't know what he's talking about. But uh what's that song history repeating? Whatever. Closer to home. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I like that. Uh The Cuomo administration was trying to get up some money to uh Build a a new Tappan Zee Bridge. I don't even know if they're going to call it the Tappan Zee Bridge. Andrew Cuomo was egotistical enough so that maybe once it's finally built in like the year 2055, he'd want it named after him. But they apparently had a whole boatload of money. And the uh, day before, uh, no, yesterday this is. The feds disqualified $481 million out of a $500 million loan for 17 projects associated with the replacement of the bridge. The EPA said the federal funds were being pulled because construction would harm the Hudson River. What, you mean more than the bridge that's already there? Now, I'm going to tell a dirty little secret about the Tappan Zee Bridge, for those of you who don't go over it often, or who have no friends or associates in Rockland, or Westchester counties, There are people. Who live in those areas. Who if they have a choice. Avoid the Tappan Zee Bridge at all costs. Why you might ask. Because they don't think it's safe. That's right. There are people. And, and they'll tell you this in life. Hey man. You go over the Tappan Zee Bridge. Man? What are you crazy? <laughs> that, that's how they whisper. About the Tappan Zee Bridge. Now. Whatever damage a bridge might have done to the Hudson, you'd think since the Tappan has been around, I think, since 1954, 55, somewhere around there, the damage has been done. Now, I would think uh, the Cuomo administration said, well, we're going to appeal the decision. We're going to try and get the EPA to reverse their, their decision. My thing is very simple. Do whatever, make whatever changes you have to make to the construction footprint of the bridge so it no longer, in the EPA's mind, damages the Hudson. Now, I don't know how badly you can damage that. It's not like people go swimming in the middle of the Hudson or anything. It's not, you know, some pristine beachfront kind of situation. Water looks kind of muddy, as a matter of fact. But if if, if it's true that it's going to damage the Hudson, then fix it. That's all I can say. Our number is eight 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 seven four four eight eight eight. Is that somebody on? That's nobody on the line, is it? Oh, okay. All right. Let me let me talk to him now, and, and we'll get to, we're going to get to it actually in about five minutes or so. Is this my man, Mike? The one and only. How you doing, buddy?
1: Okay. Well, I didn't mean to jump the gun there, my friends, regarding um the football crisis, the NFL and NFL the-
0: Michigan guys.
1: <laughs> well, a couple of things about this domestic violence and child abuse. Mm-hmm. First off, it, in my view, it goes well beyond the NFL players. But if people want to make a, I don't want to call it a stink about it, the only thing I can say is that people got to take into consideration. When you look at these guys and how they're built, and then this goes for any hefty athlete, the muscle and the physiqueness of them, when they deliver a blow, they usually put their weight behind it. So somebody delivering a blow towards another individual, one of these plates, as per se, they're going to create a lot more damage to the victim than a petite person administering that same blow.
0: You know what? You're absolutely right, Michael, and that's why they need to be cool. They need to understand who they are. They need to understand what they do for a living. And I'm not talking about the money and the rest of that, but the fact that they play in an extraordinarily violent environment – and they need to tamp down the violence when they're not playing football.
1: Yep, yeah, and, that, is, and that, does, that doesn't just go for football. It goes for any of these um, muscular professions, if you want to call it that. But, like I said, it goes beyond that because, you know, we can go back 20 years about Lorena Bobbitt. We can go back. Oh, my uh, God.
0: Why, wait a minute. Why are you invoking Lorena Bobbitt in this?
1: Because the thing is, is that women have been abused to the point that nowadays you see a police officers abusing women and abusing children. Now women should, be, should feel comfortable to be able to report to the police that they are being abused and that they don't find any confidence in a police officer fearing that they're just going to drag them back to the husband or boyfriend or just going to um, beat them even further that's why a lot of women now are going for their self-defense. And that's yeah, look, why I uh, went uh, back Bobbitt. I also include Marissa Alexander, too.
0: Let me tell you, you know. this, Michael. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking of, of that, and listen, thanks a lot for the call because we, we got our guest on the line. My daughter's taking a kickboxing class, I think, as we speak, or it starts at 7 o'clock or something. Uh, women are, 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 are looking to be able to defend themselves but for me it boils down to something very 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 simple and it's this what do you want do you want football what's your priority football or the lives of women and children it it really kind of boils down to that for me michael thanks a lot for the call right now it is a pleasure to welcome to our microphone sports reporter for arise tv mr andrew rosario andrew how you doing my friend
2: Hey Mark, I'll tell you, man, it's been too long since we've spoken. Absolutely, man. How you been? Everything's been great. Everything's been great. The rise has been doing really well. They sent me to uh, The World Cup, the Brazil. They sent me the World Cup in Brazil for ten days, which was phenomenal. My head is still spinning. But back to reality here and dealing with the madness of the
0: uh, I call it the NFCL, the National Football Crime League. (laughs) Oh wow. Andrew, let me start up by asking you this. The NFL uh, and to me, there's a reap what you sow kind of context to all this. The NFL has little by little, bit by bit, made themselves a year-round event-based entertainment entity. You know, the Super Bowl's over. What do they do? They use talk radio and they use other other forms to get people ready for the draft. Then they spent God knows how many weeks after the draft. Michael Sam, uh, uh, you know, created an extraordinary Interest in this past draft, even though he didn't go till the seventh round and got cut by the team that drafted him, but still, it was part of the NFL branding that this was something that held the public's interest for a period of time. And you know, uh, you know, and and that lasts till training camp, and then training camp starts, and then you got exhibition games, and then you get into the regular season. So the NFL, which only plays sixteen regular season games as opposed to eighty-two for the NBA and one hundred and sixty-two for Major League Baseball. But the NFL has found this magic bullet to become a year round uh, 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 point of fascination. So, my thing is, isn't this reaping what they've sown? Now, suddenly, with all this bad publicity, the NFL is, 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 I won't say they're getting their just desserts, but it seems to me as though, uh, you know, all of this that's going on. Is is part of the risk you take when you try to make uh, uh, you know, professional football bigger than life?
2: That is true, Mark. And you know, um, the game has grown as much as it's grown. Like you mentioned, right after the Super Bowl, everyone focuses on the draft, and then you have in- individuals like Michael Sam. And, you know, that just brings everybody's attention even further than you have the preseason games, and, which don't mean anything because they're waiting for the real thing. But, yeah, they, you know, they, it's a conglomerate right now to the point where, you know, they didn't have issues like Major League Baseball did in terms of the steroids and, and all that stuff that's been still a little bit of a cloud over Major League Baseball. I mean, there were over – there were close to 30 arrests – Um, between the Super Bowl and training camp alone, DWIs, DUIs, and now the big thing with the domestic violence and the child abuse. And, you know, when Roger Goodell was appointed commissioner, he came in riding the big horse, the big cowboy hat, and he was a judge, jury, and executioner. He was not letting these guys do anything to harm the shield. And when they started doing these things and he was clamping down, remember remember the New Orleans Bounty Gate and how that whole episode uh, played out where he suspended management, he suspended coaches, he suspended players. And then he assigned the ex-football commissioner, Paul Tagliabue, to uh, arbitrate his decisions, and a lot of his decisions were overturned. So a lot of people were saying, okay, how much power does he really have? And now with this whole domestic violence the child abuse scandal that's going on with Adrian Peterson. Um,
0: he's got a lot, a lot of things that he needs to correct. Now, Andrew, do you think that, uh, you know, w- when people look at the NFL and however they've handled it, that they look at Roger Goodell, is Roger Goodell the public face of the league? You know what? He,
2: he, he I guess, again, from the very beginning, when he got appointed and he was handing out these harsh penalties, they were saying, yeah, you know what? This is what this league needs. They need this league to come down on these players so that it's not going to damage the brand. It's not going to damage the, the, brand of the, and the brand and the shield of the NFL. Mm-hmm. And, again, I think – I think people started seeing him in a different light as a result of Bountygate, because the way that he came down and he impugned the reputation, especially of a couple of a couple of the players who Taglibu found out the punishment was not even close to the crime. Now, again, the way he handled the Ray Rice situation, I said from the very beginning, Mark, that if there was a video that was shown from inside, I mean from outside of the elevator, there had to be a video. Of the inside. inside it was yeah. only a matter of time before it came out. And the fact that he only suspended Ray Rice for two games when clearly he could see that that woman was out cold and being dragged out of the elevator. What did he think happened in that elevator? Did he think that he tapped her on the shoulder? <laughs> Do you think that he just put her in a headlock for a minute? And when the inside of the elevator video showed the
0: viciousness and the brutality of that, that's when a lot of hell broke loose. Absolutely. Andrew, I'm going to ask you to play school teacher now for a minute for me. Uh, you are Roger Goodell's teacher. How would you grade his handling of both domestic violence and the child abuse situations? If you were going to give him a grade A, you know, he's, he's on the honor roll, and F, he's got to repeat the, the 12th grade, which one would you give him? He's repeating the 12th grade
2: without a question. Really? There's no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, okay, they tried to remedy the situation by uh, coming up with new guidelines, new rules for players who commit acts of domestic violence, acts against kids, uh, acts against pregnant women. They went to a, a mandatory six-game suspension if, you, you know, you're a first-time offender. Okay, but that was – you know that was the, the the horse had already left the barn, okay. And then you have the allegations. Look, there are two guys right now. That uh, one guy um, by the name of Greg Hardy. He was found guilty. He plays for the Carolina Panthers. He was found guilty over the summer of domestic abuse and violence by a judge. Okay. Now, he appealed because. The first trial was just a judge trial. The second one that he's appealing is going to be a jury trial. But because he's appealing, the NFL has still allowed him to play
1: mm-hmm. up
2: until up until today, when they uh, him and Adrian Peterson have been put on what they call the executive uh, the the exempt list that's handed down by the commission, which means they're suspended until they
0: handle their business. Now, wait, wait, wait. Let me stop you there for a second. And, by the way, it's 27 minutes past the hour, 6 o'clock. We're talking with Arise TV sports reporter, Mr. Andrew Rosario. And this is something I I, I have a great deal of trouble figuring out. Uh, In some cases, the commissioner has acted on behalf of the league. In other cases, it seems as though, until very recently, they let the teams decide what to do with players like Hardy, like that guy McDonald, I think, out in, out in San Francisco. Uh, which, which should it be, Andrew? Well, in the collective bargaining
2: agreement, it's Article 46 states that uh, an individual player cannot be disciplined by both the league and his team. Mm-hmm. So if the commissioner comes down and puts a ruling down, and suspends a player, then that's it. If the, if the team comes out and suspends this player or puts him on the inactive squad for a couple of weeks, then the league can't come back and penalize him as well. So that's the big thing with the Ray Wright situation because the player Association filed an appeal yesterday claiming that under the Article 46 rule of the collective bargaining agreement that he was penalized twice for the same penalty, once, he got the two-game suspension from the commissioner, okay. and then when, when Baltimore saw that video, they cut him, okay, and then Goodell comes back and suspends him indefinitely. They're saying that's double jeopardy. You can't do that.
0: Well, wait a minute. Now, they, can, they can cut him, can't they? Anybody no, can get cut. Right, right. But they can cut him, but
2: they're saying that because Goodell had already suspended him two games, he should not come back and suspend him indefinitely oh, okay. as well. Now, let me say this. As heinous as that was, as despicable as it was, we always talk about a giving, you know, we're a society of giving second chances. There has been NFL players that have been. Convicted and served jail time for vehicular manslaughter. And after they served their jail time and they served the suspension through the NFL, they ap- applied for reinstatement and both of these players were reinstated and they actually killed somebody. Now again, as heinous as what Ray Rice did, as despicable as it was, as violent as it was, you can't tell me that after he serves the suspension that he should not be allowed a second chance to play in the NFL. But now, I don't buy it,
0: Andrew. Would anybody pick him up now? You know, you know what sports are about.
2: Sports are about what can you do for me as a player. Yeah. And if you're a, if you're a productive player, look at Alex Rodriguez. Okay, he's a perfect example of all the things that he's went through. Mm-hmm. Now he'll be back with the Yankees next year, and if he hits 40 home runs and drives in 120 runs, and the Yankees win the World Series. No one's going to remember that he didn't play in 2014. If Ray Rice can stick with a team, and that team that may be struggling, if he's the difference between that team making the playoffs and going uh, you know, to the Super Bowl, some team will pick him up with no problem.
0: Andrew, I've got to ask you this, because this has bothered me from the very beginning of this. All right, let's say for the sake of argument, that the NFL should have known that if there was a videotape on the outside of that elevator in the Rice case, there was a video inside. The prosecutors in New Jersey had both tapes. They knew about it from the very beginning. They indicted him for felonious assault, uh, felonious assault and then allowed him to do pretrial detention knowing how hard he hit that woman. Uh, don't they uh, deserve a little bit of blame, uh, blame assessment here? Totally. I mean, you talk about every facet dropping the ball in this
2: case, from the commissioner's office to the prosecutors to the district attorneys. Again, you know, you know, you've been to casinos before. Everywhere you not that often. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Everywhere you look, there's security cameras somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So again, there was now was the NFL complicit in terms of Um, getting that tape and looking the other way. Remember, TMZ reported that they have a woman from the NFL office
0: on on
2: a Yeah, saying that we did receive the tape and it's disgusting. Now, first of all, who was that person? Second of all, who did she turn that tape over to? And third of all, who did what with that tape and how far up the chain did it go? See, I don't think that Goodell right at this point – should have to resign or be fired. And those 32 owners right now are not going to fire him. I know. But if, it, but if it comes out that he knew about the tape, he saw the tape, it doesn't matter if it was before the two-game suspension or after, then he's got to go. There's I got no question about that because his integrity
0: is shot. It goes down the drain. Andrew Rosario is our guest. He's sports reporter for Arise TV. And it's great to have him on the Mark Riley Show. I got to tell you now, Andrew, let me ask you this. Since you've been to more casinos than me, if if you were a gambling man, out of all of this, do you see fundamental change both in in terms of how the NFL deals with these issues and how American society deals with these issues? Or is the NFL, at the end of the day, going to just try and paper over this stuff because they know – Come Sunday, even people who are deeply troubled by their conduct here, including Goodell, they're going to hold their nose, grab their can of beer, and turn on the game. Listen, Mark, I don't have to tell
2: you, you turn on the TV, you
0: go to a game, the parking lots are filled with the
2: tailgaters, every seat is filled, season tickets are 15, 20 years deep in terms of people waiting to get season tickets that is their safe haven for that particular time, Thursday night, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, Monday night. I think what you're going to see is I think that – and that's the fine line because everyone, and I think you would agree with this, uh, deserves due process. Absolutely. We're, we're in a society right now, we're in the social age of media where nothing can escape anything or anybody. And I think that teams – And and this doesn't just go for football. This goes for every other sport, and I think it's going to start branching out through society, which it should have been a long time ago, because we know domestic abuse doesn't just happen in the sports arena. It happens in everyday life. I think the statistic is every 10 minutes a woman is uh, domestically violated, you know, at some Mm -hmm. point, Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's despicable. But I think what you're going to see now, especially among Football players, and I heard your conversation earlier about the violence of the game and how some of these players have a hard time separating themselves when they come off the field. You know, there's a period after every game. It's called called a cool-down period where the media is not allowed to get into the locker room 15, 20 minutes after the game because these guys need to cool down. Look, they're having these guys play 60 minutes of football. They're knocking each other's brains out. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then they're expected to be intelligent and articulate and then, you know, just be back to normal and regular. That's not going to happen. But I think what you're going to see in the short term, our teams are not going to wait for the commissioner to make decisions if it impacts their individual franchise.
0: I'll tell you what uh, what really worries me, Andrew. Uh, We saw what happened with uh, James's Winston. Florida State. And my fear is that at some juncture, people are going to start making some allegations against college kids and that this is going to spread out to and seep down to college football. Uh, And, and, you know, there's still a lot of people who are extremely unhappy in Florida with the way the police and and everybody else down there in law enforcement handled the allegations against Winston. And my my fear is that, you know, simultaneously, since they both play at the same time, uh, colleges on Saturdays, and as you mentioned, uh, the pros on Thursdays, Sundays, and Mondays, that sooner or later somebody's going to start making accusations against some college ball players. Or am I crazy? No, you're not crazy at all. I mean, it's not just Jameis Winston. There's been
2: football players, practically Division One football players, who have been Arrested from everything from shoplifting to, uh, you know, burglary, uh, driving while intoxicated, public fights. But let's get back to Jameis for one second because, you know, I put him in the same category. is similar to Johnny Manziel in which I, I have this theory that I call the, uh, the helium head syndrome where these guys get to the point where their head just blows up and anything they can do and get away with, anything. By the and way, look,
0: he's, being, uh, he's sitting down for the first half of the game against Clemson for some Exactly, which I think is a care. joke.
2: Okay, God, Now, if this was his first infraction, I would say, okay, you know, yeah. half a game is, you know, I have no problem with that. But remember, the rape allegation, okay, which he was exonerated by the local authorities, and a lot of them people out, down there are saying that that investigation was a sham. Then, a couple of months later, he gets busted for shoplifting crab legs, $40 yep. worth of crab legs, okay? And then there was an incident with BB guns and some of his fellow uh, teammates that blew out like 25 to 30 windows of a, of a, of a house because they were having BB gun fights. So he's, had, he's got a track record. Yeah, okay? he does. And that university with half-game suspension to me, was a joke. All to me it's saying is that, okay, you know, we know you made a mistake, but we still got your back. Instead of coming down hard on this guy and saying, you know what, we're going to suspend you for at least a game, maybe two, until you get it through the head. Now, everyone's trying to say, oh, he's only a sophomore, he's still young, but, again, it wasn't his first infraction.
0: It wasn't his first infraction, and if you don't stop him soon, he's going to go to the pros and start acting out like this, and it's going to be, like, really seriously ugly.
2: That's right. It's either that or he's going to end up being a fifth or sixth or seventh round draft pick because teams are not going to want to take a chance in light of everything that's been going on the last couple of months, okay, mm-hmm. with a guy that, you know, could slip up once and then literally tear down an organization. I mean, Carolina, I don't know, their, their organization has a really shaky past when it comes to some of, of their players, And this whole thing with the domestic violence kind of just brought it to full circle in terms of how they've handled things in the past and how they're handling things now.
0: Final quick question, Andrew. And, again, we really appreciate your time with us. Anytime. Um, Are players, in your judgment, depending on how crucial they are to their teams? I mean, because there's a difference between uh, Hardy, who not that many people outside of Carolina know about, and a Ray Rice. Who you know uh, uh, played on a Super Bowl winning team, or uh, uh, you know Adrian Peterson, a megastar across mm-hmm. the country? Do you think that these players who are well known uh, are, are are held to a different standard than the ones who aren't? Because you know you notice Hardy played last week. I think McDonald mm-hmm. out in San Francisco played last week, uh, but Adrian Peterson sat, and Ray Rice is out of the league for now. So is there a double standard? There's a double standard in any
2: sport. Again, like we talked about earlier, it's what you can do for the winning culture of that particular team. And that's why, you know, Minnesota's being hurt badly, because not only was, is Adrian Peterson the face of that franchise, but he's one of the faces of the NFL based on what he's done since he's been in this league. And, again, you know, the thing with Greg Hardy, they just signed him for a $13 million contract, mm-hmm. okay? And it, the money is guaranteed. All oh, of it? So, Yeah. I, I think the contract was a little bit more than that, but oh, I okay. believe $13, 13 million, million of it right is yeah. guaranteed. And you know in the NFL, the only, the only um, guaranteed money is like the signing bonus. I could sign you for a $50 million contract give you a $15 million guarantee and cut you the next year and save $35 million. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Okay, it's the only sport. Baseball has guaranteed contracts. Football has guaranteed – I mean, basketball has guaranteed contracts. Your next hit in football could be your last. Mm, very, you know, the very average perfect. The average shelf life of a running back is a little bit more than three years. Three
0: years, yeah. That's why I'm wondering if Ray, Ray Rice is ever going to be able to play again.
2: He's going to be 27, I think, later this year, which means he'll be 28 going into next year. He didn't have a great year last year. He had some injuries, you know, which contributed to his decline. But coming into this camp, they said he was in the best shape of his career, and they were looking for big things from him and for the team. Now they're going to have to
0: do without him. Absolutely, Andrew Rosario. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Don't be a stranger. We're going to have you on again. Very much. I really appreciate it, Marcus. Been too long. Lib, remember that? Yeah, I do remember that for sure. (laughs) You take care, man. Have a good one. I appreciate it, Mark. We'll talk soon. Right, definitely. Andrew Rosario, sports reporter for Arise TV. 19 minutes before the hour is 7 o'clock. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this at length with somebody who knows more about it than I do, and Andrew certainly does. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you all have, uh, uh, you know, opinions about this, I'd love to hear them. Uh, Michael, uh, my good friend Michael SW, called earlier. That's 888-874-4888 is our number. For me, it's real simple. What do you got? Football or the lives of women and children? And I'm not talking about, you know, uh, thank God nobody's been killed here. I'm not talking about the lives, literally the lives of women and children. But I am talking about how the lives of women and children are twisted by domestic violence and child abuse. Now, Adrian Peterson's innocent until proven guilty. You know, there's been an allegation made, but he hasn't done any. You know, he hasn't, he hasn't gotten, he's not locked up or anything. I think the max he can do is two years. Which, by the way, didn't Michael Vick do two years? <laughs> I, I don't understand. You do two years for dogs and you do two years for putting a switch to a four-year-old kid. Now, I must say, when I was a child, I got the switch a lot. And for me as a little kid, the scariest thing about uh uh getting switched was when my mother, cuz my mother was the one that did the switchings. She would make me go out and pick out my own switch. And switches were not tree branches, by the way. They were like, you know, uh uh they were different. They were switches. They were easy to identify and they were terrifying in their own way. Cuz it wasn't as if somebody was trying to, you know, like beat you up. Switches hurt; they stung. But apparently, Adrian Peterson has a different definition of a switch. For me, it's a it, it's it's simple and cut and dried. America is not prepared. Jason, I'm gonna say this again: America is not prepared to look seriously at the violence that makes football so popular in light of these allegations of domestic abuse and child abuse. America. I'm not talking about the, I'm not talking about Goodell or Rice or any of the rest of these people. America. You know, one of the funnier things I I heard about the other day, and it's because I'm an old man and cynical, I heard, you know, Anheuser-Busch ain't happy. All right. Now anheuser Bush does Budweiser and a million other beers. And they're saying, well, you know, these, I, I think they're talking about Adrian Peterson. That these actions run contrary to our corporate culture. Yo, your corporate culture is to sell beer, homie. <laughs> what, what are you talking about, your corporate culture? Your corporate culture is to get Budweiser's in the hands of as many people who are tailgating or are sitting up in these ball yards as is humanly possible. That's what you do. Now, you may have some kind of culture at your company. And I'm sure that culture at your company does not condone childhood. Don't make it sound like, you know, you're holier than now or nothing. Radisson beat you to the punch anyway. And Radisson pulled their sponsorships. You just hollered. So uh, it's a hot mess. And when you're talking about a hot mess that makes $9 billion a year, you become very, very clear, very clear about, what takes precedence? What was it Shirley Chisholm said one time? When you put morality up against profit, profit almost always wins. Well, that's what's going on here. There's going to be, going to be plenty of hand-wringing and, you know, the commentators. Because, see, we have now a 24-hour sports talk radio cycle in New York and in cities all over the country because talk, sports talk radio has become popular, which means everybody in terrestrial radio has to slavishly follow and change their progressive formats to sports talk formats because that's where the money is after all. And the sad fact of the matter is everybody, and I, you know, I was sitting up thinking about this because when they call it a $9 billion industry, they don't count all of the people who get paychecks Because they talk about football or write about football. See, now, I just talked about football for 20 minutes, but I ain't getting paid. (laughs) I don't know if that makes me holier than now, Jason, but, I mean, what what are you going to do? It's an issue. It's a story. But the NFL is an industry that supports huge—everybody from the folks that sell hot dogs right down to the people—or right up— to the people that write about this and get the hot dogs for nothing up in the press room. Or, or if they don't get it for nothing, they get them reasonably priced. They used to get it for nothing. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's sad to see all this hand wringing when, as far as I'm concerned, not a whole heck of a lot's going to change. Now I'm going to tell you something that has changed and I'm kind of perplexed by this. New Yorkers are smoking like it's 2007. Uh, the bottom line is people are smoking again. People are lighting up. Uh, and, and and this is after, by the way, they raised the age of purchase to 21. And the least you can charge for cigarettes, is ten fifty a pack. I remember when cigarettes were like $10 a carton, <laughs> okay, when I was a kid. Because <laughs> I used to have a two-pack-a-day habit until 1990. I used to smoke cigarettes like a fiend. Uh... But I stopped. And, I, you know, I got to tell you, I haven't missed it. But apparently. From 2002 to 2010, which is roughly most of Michael Bloomberg's mayoralty. Smoking among adult New Yorkers decreased 35 percent. In 2002, 22 percent of the population smoked by 2010, 14 percent of the population smoked. Last year, the smoking rate rose to 16 percent. And there are a million smokers in the city of New York for the first time since 2007. Now, why is that, you might ask? Why, why are people smoking? It, it reminds me of a commercial that they used to run uh, back in the day when you could actually run cigarette commercials. Are you smoking more now but enjoying it less? (laughs) Then you should change to camel. Uh, I don't know why I remember that. Anyway, uh, the Department of Health here in New York says that the the increase is because there's been a a cut in funding for anti-smoking initiatives over the past five years. I ain't buying that. I'm not. I don't think there's a direct correlation between anti-smoking commercials on TV, which I think some of them are effective. But I don't think, like, you know, this kind of increase to the point that now there are a million people smoking. What they apparently found out by studying the issue, which, of course, people got paid for, is that there are people who really kind of like smoke like one to ten cigarettes a day. In fact, they say that 76 percent of all adult smokers compared to 64 percent in 2002. Which was, by the way, the year the smoking ban was introduced. So, you know, uh, maybe people are just trying to save money. That's possible. I mean, I, when I smoked, I couldn't do one to ten, ten cigarettes a day. I was doing 40 cigarettes a day. What is it, 20 in a pack, right, Jason? Jason doesn't even smoke, I man. Yeah, it's 20 in a pack. Well, I used to do two packs, so I'd smoke 40 cigarettes in a day. So, I, you know, I was I was a very different person and I was young and inexperienced, <laughs> but, uh, you know, one to 10 in a day. That's like a half a pack. And apparently people, uh, uh, you know, are are managing to do that. I think part of it may have to do with the stress that comes with living in the greatest city in the world. I, I just get that sense to some small extent. Now, we got a couple other stories to talk about. You know, there's a trial going on in Brooklyn and, you know, the New York Post and I, I, I have some friends that work there. So I'm not trying to dog them. They're, they're folks who are conservatives, but they're my friends nonetheless. Uh, there's a trial. Uh, there's a guy, apparently a firefighter, Luke Schreiner, who got into some kind of a road rage situation with a black postal worker and called him the N-word all over the place. You're nothing but a See, I almost said it. Nothing but an effing N-word. That's why you work for the Postal Service. This is for testimony from the guy who this guy, uh, uh, Schreiner dogged out. And apparently this was in Garrison Beach. Uh, Garrison Beach. He smacked the guy in the face. This was in November of last year. Uh, and there was a black passerby, and he said, you're an N-word too. <laughs> you're all N-words. You're the color of my... <clears throat> So now he's facing four years in prison, but what I find interesting is that for whatever reasons, the New York Post decided to link this story to Django Unchained, Quentin Tarantino's movie, where they did use the N-word a whole heck of a lot. But why would you end the story about a guy being assaulted by a racist and end up saying, Tarantino's 2012 fic Django chain sparked con- conversation and criticism for its constant use of the N-word, which was uttered some 115 times in the Oscar-winning screenplay. What? What the deuce does that have to do with a guy going on trial for assaulting someone and, and using racial slurs? Does it always happen? <laughs> I don't understand. A little bit of good news. Federal researchers said yesterday the number of Americans without health insurance had declined substantially in the first quarter of this year, which is the first federal measure of the number of uninsured Americans since the Affordable Care Act extended coverage to millions of people. The decline alone from last year to this 3.8 million, in other words, 3.8 million more people now have health insurance. But, Jason, you know, there's a carrot and then there's a stick. The Obama administration said Monday it's planning to terminate health insurance for 115,000 people come the 1st of October because they failed to prove that they were U.S. citizens or illegal immigrants eligible for coverage. It also told 363,000 people they could lose financial aid because their incomes could not be verified. So Barack giveth and Barack taketh away. I guess that's what that means. I, I don't know. It, it, it's a little, little bizarre to me. Now, because I'm an upbeat kind of guy, more good news. The poverty rate declined last year for the first time since 2006. Uh, and there was significant improvement in terms of the number of children living in poverty. The, number, the poverty rate for children under 18 declined for the first time since 2000. Fell by 1.4 million to 14.7 million. Now, if we could just do something about the 14.7 million, what a wonderful world we would live in. Uh, but, but that is a bit of good news. Let's hope that they don't, you know, boot too many of those kids off the Affordable Care Act rolls because their parents' income couldn't be verified. Now, I don't know how many of y'all, because we do broadcast out into the ether and into the world. You know, there's a big vote tomorrow uh, over in the U.K., which might not be the same U.K. when the vote's over. Scotland, a place I've visited three times, and actually I have roots in Scotland, even though I'm an African-American. I have roots in Scotland. My my grandmother on my father's side was born and raised in a little town called Cooper in Scotland. Her father, my great-grandfather, was an indentured servant there. Uh, Scotland is voting on whether or not it wants to be independent from Great Britain and from England. Now, having a British wife... I have to tread very carefully, okay? because she's not listening. But, you know, when I asked her this morning, so what do you think? She just stared at me. (laughs) Okay, so uh, I my gut instincts and and I guess because I have a little bit of Scottish roots in me. My gut instinct says. Let them secede. Uh, Let me put it this way. I believe in a public referendum. A public referendum is the best way to solve this. And I say that knowing that at various points in American history, if they, for example, had put slavery to a public referendum, black folks would never be free. (laughs) Okay, so there's a caveat there. But in this kind of situation, let the people decide what they want to do. And I find it interesting that the British government has been... You know, holding out all manner of carrots, trying to convince the Scots not not to do it, to vote yes on independence. And and, you know, you you got the—I was looking at the BBC uh, this morning. You got the prime—somebody, some foreign minister, prime minister, whatever—from Italy. This is going to be a big problem. And uh, there may be other states that may want to break off and declare their own independence. Yo. First of all, you know why I want Scotland to be independent? Because Scotland is more progressive <laughs> than England. <laughs> Sorry. It is. It is. They call it left-leaning. But uh, they're—they they're, trust me on this. Now, we're almost out of time. It's time for my final segment of the show, To the Ridiculous. Now, do you all know who Tony Perkins is? He's the head of the Family Research Council. Okay, He's one of those rabid, rabid, rabid conservatives. So he's come up with a theory, this guy, and this comes to us courtesy of our friends at the Wanket, which I love. I love the Wanket. Great website. Uh, he says, repeal the First Amendment so ISIS doesn't take over the U.S. All right. His theory is that ISIS people, uh, American kids are turning to ISIS because they've lost Jesus in the school <laughs> okay? because they're not allowed to have mandatory Bible study in U.S. public schools. Uh, This is what the guy says. If only mandatory Bible Bible readings were still in our schools, then the handful of Americans who have gone to join ISIS would never, ever have encountered Islamic radicalism. But as it is, there's a giant sucking sound that would give Ross Perot pause, and that sucking is actually the hiss of the jihadi snake charmers and their siren call to prayer at the mosque. But it doesn't have to be this way, America. You see, if the government would just promote Christianity, all would be well. All would be well. And I mean, this guy actually heads an organization. (laughs) That's the thing I don't, that's what's ridiculous. That is what is ridiculous. All right, well, it's time for me to go. I do a sit-in or something, but it's not in the proper context here at the Progressive Radio Network, you know, because I can go for another half hour, another hour easy. But, you know, I just want to say I have enjoyed this. I have enjoyed all of you. I've enjoyed Jason Taubenfeld, who's been at the controls, and we thank him, and we thank Gary Noll, And again, PRN.FM. Don't just tell your friends to listen to me. I'm a commie. I want you to tell your friends to listen to everybody that's on here, all right? Because this network needs to grow and move forward. Because we can't depend on terrestrial radio. You see what they did to progressive radio, right? And I'm not holding sour grapes for that. I had a great, I I worked in radio in this town for 40 years. So I'm not holding out sour grapes for what's been done to Progressive Talk Radio. But PRN.FM is the future of Progressive Talk Radio. And I hope you all understand and relate to that. We'll see you next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. Have yourselves a great week ahead.